Welcome to the Absite Smackdown podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Absite Smackdown podcast. And today, we're going to share another one of our Absite review videos with you all. And this one's from the upcoming version three of the review course. This one is all about select subspecialties. My co-host Jessica again has the week off this week, and uh, we appreciate you tuning in. As usual, we hope you find this talk super useful. And with that, let's get to it. Hi, and we're winding down on the course now in this lecture we come to select subspecialties. One of the key things that comes up with respect to subspecialties is neurosurgical issues. And one of the most common things that comes up is ADH release. That comes from the posterior pituitary. Remember that's neuro tissue derived, neurohypothesis. The anterior pituitary, also called the adenohypothesis, that's gut derived. Now ADH from the posterior pituitary Release of that is controlled by the supraoptic nucleus. ADH increases water resorption in the collecting ducts in response to increased osmolarity. It causes uh, the distal convoluted tubule, etc., cetera, uh, to increase resorb absorption in the collecting ducts. Um, shock uh, can be seen in patients that receive radiotherapy for their pituitary adenoma. And this is pituitary apoplexy. I actually saw a case of this just about a week ago. And remember, that's shock in patients receiving radiotherapy for pituitary adenoma or otherwise having some pituitary uh, lesion corrected. Uh, they can become profoundly hypotensive and uh, multiple issues uh, related to that. Uh, the treatment for it is steroids, relatively straightforward. Now, blood supply to the brain comes from the internal carotids and the vertebrals. Uh, now, extensive collaterals exist between these, including the periorbital collaterals. That allows retrograde flow between the ophthalmic artery and the internal carotid artery. And uh, when there's a focal cervical ICA occlusion at the level of the neck, cervical ICA occlusion, you can have this retrograde flow between the ophthalmic artery and the internal carotid artery. Internal carotid artery, remember, no branches in the neck. One of the ways you can tell that that's what it is. And here we have the ophthalmic artery uh, here on the cartoon screen right. Now the ICA, the internal carotid supplies the hemispheres via the anterior and middle cerebral arteries. Middle cerebral artery, anterior cerebral artery, middle and anterior. The anterior cerebral artery can have issues uh, that cause a frontal release, mental status changes, and uh, slowing in general. Mental status changes can act like you're drunk when you have a frontal contusion or frontal loss. Sometimes you'll think those patients are drunk in the trauma bay. In fact, they just have a severe frontal contusion. The anterior cerebral artery, when there's an event with that, can do much the same thing. Frontal release, mental status changes, and slowing in general. The middle cerebral artery events can cause speech and motor deficits and uh, to the contralateral side. You can have facial droop to the contralateral side. 
Amaurosis fugax, uh, or fugax, is the occlusion of the ophthalmic branch of the ICA, and it can cause like a shade coming down over the eye, these transient visual changes. Now, the verts, the vertebrals supply the cerebellum and the brainstem, and that's via ultimately the posterior cerebellar artery and basilar arteries. Uh, these arise from the subclavian ultimately diffuse into a single basilar artery and later divide into two posterior cerebral arteries. And the PCA, that posterior cerebral artery, events there can cause vertigo because of the issue with the uh, cerebellum. And you can have visual disturbances, tinnitus or tinnitus, uh, which is ringing in the ear, drop attacks, and decreased coordination because of the posterior cerebellar events. The anastomosis between the branches of the ICA and the vertebrals, this rich anastomosis is the circle of Willis. And now multiple variations exist. Even though you may have seen that classic circle of Willis cartoon over and over again, many people actually have an incomplete circle of Willis. In fact, most do. Uh, so most have an incomplete circle of Willis, and so you can have isolated hemispheric events. It's not uncommon at all. The artery of Adamkowitz that you heard about before, especially when it comes to ER thoracotomies, that supplies the conus medullaris and the inferior portion of the thoracic cord. It originates at the T10 to L2 area in general, which is why you should clamp the aorta well away from this area. Uh, otherwise, you will have the typical issues with this anterior sp uh, spinal artery of Adamkowitz. And it's important to identify that during aortic surgery because, like we said, uh, you can cause spinal cord ischemia if you clamp too low. Uh, you can have a problem. Again, a T10, L2 area is where that comes off. Um, it can be identified via CT angiography. Brain tumors? Well, most brain tumors are metastatic uh, from other sites. And that's the most common, a lesion area. Common symptoms include headache, consistent vomiting, visual disturbances, and other neurologic deficits. In adults, about two-thirds are supratentorial. In children, about two-thirds are infratentorial, so beneath the tentorium cerebelli. Pituitary adenoma, we talked some about that already. Uh, you treat with bromocryptine and transsphenoidal resection, often through the nose. Acromegaly, loss of peripheral vision, and galacteria can be seen with this. Acoustic neuroma, the treatment for that is resection. Uh, this is a schwannoma, uh, tinnitus, one-sided hearing loss, vertigo, hydrocephalus, those can all be seen, and neurofibromatosis is associated with that. When it comes to medulloblastoma, screen left, you can have an increased ICP and cerebellar dysfunction. Most common brain tumor in children is medulloblastoma. Most common metastatic brain tumor in children is actually neuroblastoma, so a little bit different. Radiation, chemo, and resection, those are the treatments. Appendomoma, if, if it is seen in childhood, that lesion is most commonly seen in the posterior fossa. Uh, but in adults, it's typically supratentorial for appendomoma, so it differs by age. And it can involve the central canal or fourth ventricle, so an increased ICP is seen along with hydrocephalus. Treatment is resection, and of course radiation here, uh, it's actually very, it's radiosensitive, that can be used as an adjunct. The screen left shows a meningioma. And that's about 20% of intracranial tumors. Most commonly, we see that in middle-aged women. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at absitesmackdown.com. 
a unilateral proptosis may be seen, you can have the inability to perceive smell and you can see calcifications in it. Now, if it's completely resected, the prognosis is excellent, but unfortunately an incomplete resection gives a high prognosis, a high likelihood of recurrence. And another important lesion is the oligodendroma. Here, the classic history is a patient with long history of seizures. It's a slow growing tumor, affects middle-aged and young patients, unfortunately. It's common in children, and it is chemoradiation treatment along with resection. Well, unfortunately, the glioma is the most common type of brain tumor. And of the gliomas, the glioblastoma multiforme is the most common type of glioma seen. Uh, technically, it's actually a high-grade astrocytoma. It's a grade four. And it represents about a quarter of primary brain tumor cases. And that's really unfortunate because the survival is 11 months. So again, remember, metastases to the brain most common brain uh, lesion, uh, tumor lesion, but when it is a uh, primary lesion, um, it's the most common type of primary brain tumor, glioma, most common glioma, glioma uh, blastoma or glioblastoma rather, multiforme, really unfortunate. Presents with bleeding, focal neurologic deficits, and an increased ICP. Radiation, chemo and resection are recommended if possible. Steroid dosing with dexamethasone is thought to help control the edema. So while we're talking about this type of astrocytoma, grade four, let's talk about astrocytomas in general. Uh, High-grade lesions are seen in older patients, uh, low-grade lesions in younger patients. If possible, these need to be resected and chemo and radiation are used. But unfortunately, most degenerate into a glioblastoma multiforme with time. Next up, let's talk about screen left arteriovenous malformations. These are congenital, but symptoms commonly don't arise until 20 to 40 years of age. Bleeding or sudden intense headache is the presentation. Seizures, loss of consciousness, or neck stiffness can also be a presentation. Non-contrast head CT will make the diagnosis here. Uh, calcium channel blockers to prevent vasospasm, uh, hypertension control, and radiotherapy or uh, embolization. Uh, those are the treatments typically for AVMs. Next up, let's talk about brown Saquard syndrome. This is a syndrome where only one side of the cord is transected. Classic is a stab wound to the back. I actually have seen this in the trauma situation, in the trauma bay actually three times now. Uh, it's pretty unusual though. And the same side as the injury, so if you're stabbed on the left, the you lose motor function on the left. And the way I remember this is that uh, the ipsilateral, the same side of the stab or injury, that loses motor function. But the other side becomes Superman or Superwoman. It becomes so powerful because it loses the ability to feel pain and it loses the ability to feel temperature and light touch, but it can still move. So it acquires superpowers. That's just how I remember it. However you remember it, just remember ipsilateral loss of motor function, contralateral side loses ability to feel pain, temp, light touch. Central cord syndrome is another one I've had the misfortune to see in the trauma base several times. Uh, this is from either bleeding into the central portion of the cord, uh, infarct to the central portion of the cord, or hyperextension. So this is the typical elderly patient who falls. Uh, they have a neck extension injury in the setting of chronic spinal disease that they've had just because they're older, or uh, you know calcifications in the area. 
the upper extremities become weak and patches of skin become hyper aesthetic. So they have this patchy, very sensitive areas all over their body, can't even touch them. And other areas lose sensation. So you can see this in elderly trauma patients and there will be no neck fracture. You can have uh, CTs, et cetera, that show no obvious neck injury. And that can be from hyperextension with pre-existing arthritic changes. In fact, what makes it so worrisome is the patient may not initially demonstrate this. The patient may have some kind of congenital mental, rather some kind of comorbid mental status issue. They can be elderly, not quite be with it. They don't really complain. They move everything. They move their feet. But then with time, even after the trauma bay, this can develop. And that's really concerning. I've had the misfortune to see that one time, and it was a central cord syndrome. Uh, very uh, problematic. And if these patients do need to be intubated, elderly patients with a central cord do need to be intubated, their prognosis is terrible. Let's talk about anterior cord syndrome. And there's a loss of blood supply to the anterior part of the cord inability to move bilaterally and loss of pain and temp sensation bilaterally can occur real problem spine tumor facts in general are another important thing that comes up on our ab site uh, the most common spine tumor is actually a neurofibroma and most spine tumors luckily they're benign uh, they're benign in the sense that they uh, don't uh, metastasize frequently etc now, extradural tumors, ones outside the dura, they're more commonly malignant, but intradural tumors are more, are more commonly benign. And just remember, even though these are call, called benign, they can create real issues. So for paraganglionomas, uh, which can occur in these areas, remember, you got to check those urine metanephrine. So for spine tumors, just remember, uh, kind of metanephrine check may be necessary too for paraganglionoma. A couple housekeeping issues, it's important to remember, Broca's area and Wernicke's area. Uh, Broca's area gives broken speech. Broca's gives broken speech, uh, and there's a non-fluent aphasia, we'll say, because patients are aphasic, but they can't say anything or very little. That's located the posterior part of the anterior lobe. Wernicke's area, uh, that's the temporal lobe location, and they can comprehend stuff, and when they try to talk, there's like a word salad. They're just wordy, doesn't really make sense. Uh, that's a Wernicke's aphasia. So that's the neuro part. Some of the other select subspecialty facts that come up include those from OBGYN. So let's run through briefly some of the fast absite facts that run uh, from or come from OBGYN. Screen left's a good cartoon of a lot of it, including the adenohypothesis, the anterior pituitary with FSH and LH, and kind of how it influences these different things. And also the phases of the uterine lining, which comes up all the time. So some fast OBGYN, oh, and of course the cycle in days for the periodic bleeding uh, demonstrated by uh, females. OBGYN, the uterine artery and ovarian artery are the blood supply to the ovary. At the squamocolumnar junction, cervix goes from stratified squamous epithelium to columnar epithelium. That's the most common site for cervical cancer. The 28-day menstrual cycle, screen bottom left, is uh, divided into the follicular ovulatory phase and the luteal phase. And it can also be described as a menstrual, where there's bleeding, sloughing, pre-ovulatory, ovulatory, and post-ovulatory. Uh, but in general, however you do it, there's a follicular, ovulatory, and luteal phase. 
FSH and luteinizing hormone, those are from the anterior pituitary. Like we said earlier, that's the adenohypophysis. It's gut-derived tissue. It releases more, many more hormones than the oxytocin and vasopressin uh, typically seen uh, posterior pituitary. Um, and uh, the headline here is there are many uh, hormones uh, related here. Uh, FSH, LH, key from the anterior pituitary. Uh, the oocyte matures, the oocyte matures under the influence of FSH and LH. Uh, the FSH is then inhibited, ultimately, there's a feedback inhibition on uh, follicle-stimulating hormone by the rise in estrogen. And a dominant follicle will continue through the cycle and make estrogens. Here's a one from the textbook uh, from the Absite Smackdown review book. And uh, there's a little typo that's being corrected right now, but the headline is approximately 14 days into the cycle, about 14 days into the cycle, estrogen and LH increase. Estrogen and LH increase about 14 days into the cycle. And that results in the ovary releasing the dominant follicle and the egg entering the tube. So this spike it corresponds to ovulation. The cervix is prepared for sperm uh, via thickening and increasing levels of mucus. And the corpus, corpus luteum is formed from that empty follicle, this developing corpus luteum. So here's ovulation, developing corpus luteum, and the corpus luteum secretes estrogen and progesterone ultimately, and that of course feeds back on FSH that we talked about, keeps it low. Screen left is a good uh, photo from laparoscopy of endometriosis. Unfortunately, about 20% of women of reproductive age have this, and it can cause infertility. There can be these chocolate cysts or gunpowder burn cysts appearance. Uh, again, infertility can occur, and we think that retrograde menstruation is one cause, but we're not really sure why this happens to some people. Most commonly, it's in locations outside the uterus. This is the abdominal wall anteriorly. Pelvic pain, infertility, menorrhagia, uh, bleeding significantly uh, during period. Uh, pelvic mass, uh, nodular uterosacral ligament, those can all be present. MMRI or ultrasound, those can be consistent with the diagnosis, but really it's an exploratory laparotomy or laparoscopy that makes the diagnosis. Again, lesions are blue and black. They get called chocolate cysts as a result or gunpowder burns. And the treatment in general here is NSAIDs, uh, OCPs, oral contraceptive pills, Danazol, and a GNRH agonist. Those can all help with endometriosis. Uh, if there's an issue and these really don't do so well and there are fer uh, fertility issues, you can have a surgical procedure to debulk the area and improve fertility and some anatomic relationships. So a sur surgical intervention can be necessary uh, with a failure of many things, including fertility. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best of your Absite review. Interestingly, and we don't talk about this too often in general surgery, but it is important whenever we see a female who has what we think might be an acute abdomen. Uh, in general surgical differential diagnosis, it's important to remember ovarian torsion as a cause for acute abdomen. Sure does hurt them, 
Uh, ectopic pregnancy, ruptured or otherwise, needs to be in the differential very commonly uh, for many patients who have an acute abdomen. And pelvic inflammatory disease, it can hurt like heck. And uh, PID can really demonstrate severe abdominal pain. Those need to be in our differential when we approach appro uh, patients who are appropriately uh, aged, et cetera, uh, for any of these conditions uh, that really needs to be the differential for acute abdomen. When it comes to endometrial cancer, this is the most common malignancy of the reproductive tract in the female, like cartoon uh, screen right. Adenocarcinoma is most common. Tamoxifen use, diabetes, obesity, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, hypertension, those are all risk factors. Postmenopausal vaginal bleeding, that's the most common presentation. So between vaginal bleeding and uh, between uh, uh, rather, after menopause, to have continued vaginal bleeding, that's kind of how it shows up. Uh, it's the most common presentation. Uh, when a patient's later found to have it, this is can be what it's from. But just remember, not all vaginal bleeding postmenopausal is endometrial cancer. It's just in the differential. Uh, diagnosis is via endometrial biopsy. A total abdominal hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-ophorectomy uh, with peritoneal washings and lymph node sampling can sometimes be curative uh, for endometrial cancer. And if nodes are positive or there's a very high-grade lesion, radiotherapy uh, can be added. Now, when it comes to ovarian lesions, and these come up a lot, there's some really important considerations. Uh, it's always hard to say, is this a benign cyst or cancer? And we get in this a lot with uh, laparoscopy for things, uh, general surgical issues. So these are important facts for us to take home. Remember, age over 50 is associated with increased risk of malignant ovarian lesion. If you have a fixed pelvic mass that's solid uh, in a peri or postmenopausal woman, well, that fits with ovarian cancer. Meigs syndrome is when you have an ovarian fibroma and you get a hydrothorax from it along with ascites. So a woman has a hydrothorax with ascites, no other obvious reason. Well, Meigs syndrome is one of them. And just removing the lesion is curative, this ovarian fibroma. Remember, Krunkenberg tumors, there's usually the double O umlaut over the U. Uh, that can be from any site, but classically it's from the GI tract. And that's when there's a metastasis to the ovary. It can be from a gastric cancer. Again, the most common metastatic GI lesion to the ovary, this Krukenberg tumor, is uh, gastric cancer. One of the important things that we can use to help decide whether a lesion is malignant or no when it comes to the ovaries is CA-125. But the truth is um, a laparotomy or laparoscopy is often necessary to determine whether a woman has a cystic, whether a woman who has a cystic ovarian lesion whether that lesion is benign or malignant. So often you need to look at it with laparoscopy. Uh, and let's go to the list of the many malignant ovarian lesions. There's a lot. Uh, immature teratoma, for one. Choriocarcinoma. Granulosothecal cell tumor. Sertoli-Leydig tumor. Mucous cystadenocarcinoma. And a serous adenoma. So just lots of types of what can be malignant ovarian lesions. The serous cystadenoma can be bilateral, and it can be fluid-filled with tall columnar epithelium. Mucinous cystadenoma, well, that'll make mucin, and it's similar to intestinal or endocervical epithelium. When it comes to the Sertoli-Leydig tumor, you can have virilization and excess testosterone. 
granulosa thecal cell tumor. Precocious puberty can be seen with granulosa thecal cell tumor. Choreo, this is most commonly seen after a molar pregnancy. So a woman has a molar pregnancy and you'll, they get increased HCG, treated with chemo or total abdominal hysterectomy. Immature teratoma, that's seen in young females. And again, there's an increased AFP with uh, a teratoma, immature teratoma. Remember, in mature teratomas, adult tissue such as hair and teeth are seen, and they're not seen in immature ones, but mature ones have that. Uh, in one of the uh, podcast episodes on the Absite Smackdown podcast recently, um, we did a Halloween special. We do that every year with the top five darkest surgical facts around Halloween time. And uh, the 2021s actually was, uh, included uh, the teratoma because this is the one that has the mature teratoma teeth and hair, and it can be kind of a disconcerting lesion. So that was one of the top five darkest surgical facts. Dysgerminoma, uh, the most common germ cell ovarian tumor that is also malignant is the dysgerminoma. So germ cell ovarian tumor that is also malignant, dysgerminoma. Uh, second to third decade of life, increased LDH, increased CA125, and radiation and chemotherapy sensitive. Screen right shows, unfortunately, cervical cancer, or at least dysplasia. So the second most common cancer of the reproductive system in the female. Um, remember, you know, pap smear, it's really only 50% sensitive. And colposcopy with biopsy is really required for areas that are suspicious, even if pap smear is normal. Women 45 to 55, see this, that's where you see it. Most common is a squamous cell at the transition zone. There are several kinds of HPV that put you at high risk for that, 16, 18, 31 early sexual activity, multiple partners, chronic cervical inflammation, and tobacco use all do this. Uh, painless postcoital vaginal bleeding is the classic symptom. So they bleed after sex, uh, sexual intercourse, and uh, that is the classic symptom. Again, pap smear, 50% sensitive. Colposcopy with biopsy is really required if you're worried. A LEAP, which is a loop electrical excisional procedure, a LEAP, with conization should be performed when there's moderate or severe dysplasia present. Here's the treatment by stage. This is the FIGO classification, one, two, three, four. Uh, and so stage four is involvement of the bladder, rectum, or METS, that's stage four. Stage one is just carcinoma right at the cervix. Uh, stage two is spread to the upper two thirds of the vagina and parametrial involvement can be seen. That's stage two. Stage three, lower one-third of the vagina involved or pelvic sidewall involvement. So if you understand stage one is really just carcinoma at the cervix, stage four involves other structures, you can kind of get stage two and stage three. For carcinoma in situ and a stage one, the transition zone has to go away, and that can be done via multiple techniques, cryotherapy, laser treatment, cone biopsy, or LEAP, Hysterectomy is an option if the patient does want uh, does not want uh, fertility in the future. And then a stage 1A, 2, 1B, or 2, that's a radical hysterectomy, uh, pelvic node dissection. Uh, so, you know, and other stages uh, are rec uh, receive radiation, internal or external. So there's a kind of a wide range here, depending on uh, how far things uh, get along. The photo screen left is of a vulvar, a vulvar cancer. And this is the most, uh, most commonly, it's a squamous cell cancer associated with HPV. 
DES, diethylsilvesterol exposure, gives uh, increased risk for vaginal clear cell carcinoma. So DES exposure in utero, etc. Uh, vaginal bleeding, itching, discharge may be seen. It can be treated with vaginectomy uh, with or without radiation. Wide local excision is acceptable for vulvar cancer with microinvasion, but radical vulvectomy with no dissection is required for more advanced lesions. So that's the OBGYN subspecialty part. We have a couple others to do as we get through, and one of those is urology. And although a lot of urologic facts are kind of peppered through the course and the trauma talk, etc., there are some specific things that come up about urology on the app site. Now, one of those is Gerota's fascia. And remember, Gerota's fascia envelops the kidneys. Kidneys are retroperitoneal organs. And Gerota's fascia kind of encompasses those. Some of the key anatomic facts include the renal vein length and position. We talked about it earlier, but remember the renal vein on the left is typically longer than the one on the right. On the left, the gonadal vein drains into the renal vein. On the right side, it doesn't do that. The, the left renal vein is longer, the gonadal vein plugs into it on the left. Kidney functions, it regulates RBC production via erythropoietin. It also regulates blood pressure. The JGA, juxtaglomerular, juxtaglomerular apparatus, regulates according to renal blood flow, and that's both osmolarity and pressure-based. Renin release is increased in response to low blood pressure, or it's decreased osmolarity, either one. Aldosterone increases as a result and sodium absorption, resorption rather, occurs. And we've talked about that earlier in another section. The, here's that left renal vein, the adrenal vein here coming, and the right, uh, I'm sorry, the left gonadal vein here. Uh, again, all coming to that left renal vein. Here's that SMA going right over that left renal vein. That's another important anatomic relationship. Celiac axis, Real close SMA, SMA going right over left renal vein. It's kind of a way you find it when you procure organs. You can, uh, you're sure, uh, basically, when you find that SMA and you kind of incise through the aorta back toward the posterior wall, you're sure you got everything else that you need for the kidneys down here. The renal arteries don't typically come off above the SMA. So all these hints uh, for how to know where you are in that area. And on CT, this is an important marker for where the SMA is, the relationship to that left renal vein. So the kidney regulates vitamin D production. It, uh, it is one of the hydroxylations for the dihydroxycholecalciferol, and that vitamin D active form is what that is. It's made in part in the kidneys. The kidneys excrete waste. They regulate water and electrolytes. And regulation of water at the collecting ducts, like we said earlier, that's from vasopressin, ADH release. Uh, while sodium resorption is more controlled by aldosterone. Now, remember to rule out when a patient has a left side of varicocele, that can be a hint that they have an intra-abdominal condition like a renal cancer uh, because the left gonadal vein drains into that left renal vein. So an isolated left side of varicocele is a hint. There's some issue with the kidneys. In men, unlike women, an internal and external sphincter controls urinary continence and ejaculation. That comes up all the time uh, as an isolated urologic fact. Remember, the prostate creates seminal fluid via the seminal vesicles, and the Sertoli cells are responsible for spermatogenesis. So kind of these one-off urologic facts. 
Uh, lighting cells make testosterone. They're the ones that do that. And sperm follows the sevu path. Seminal vesicles, epididymis, vas deferens, and then urethra. Remember the ejaculatory duct are formed from the seminal vesicles and the vas running together. An important fast anatomic fact for urology, at the renal hilum, it's van, the renal vein, renal artery posterior, and then the ureter uh, is um, anterior to posterior. So a vein, artery, and then really kind of nothing, but the ureters are there uh, anterior to posterior. The renal calyx is up in that area. Uh, so sometimes uh, it's vein, artery, nothing, not much, I think is how that uh, mnemonic usually goes as a joke. But the vein is usually anterior to the artery. And then the ureter calyx is right about there, anterior to posterior. The renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, remember decreased osmolarity gives increased renin. This causes the cleavage of angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is then converted to AT2. AT2 ultimately uh, via the ACE angiotensin converting enzyme in the lungs. So the lungs play a role to take this angiotensinogen 1 to 2, and that results ultimately in increased aldosterone. Ultimately, in increased aldosterone. Next up, testicular tumors. These come up all the time. It's the most common cancer, unfortunately, in men 20 to 35 years old. So this is the most common cancer in that age group. Cryptorchidism is a major factor and increases the risk for both testicles. But remember, just when you correct cryptorchidism, it doesn't correct the cancer risk. It just puts the testes in a place where you can surveil them. So uh, they can just be surveilled because they're not up inside the person anymore. So cryptorchidism, they're going to be at that risk, uh, but it just moving the testis allows you to then surveil them better for cancer. But unfortunately, that cancer risk seems to still be attached to the testis. A solid, firm, painless testicular mass, typical presentation. Testicular ultrasound confirms the diagnosis, uh, CT, abdomen, and pelvis, along with chest x-ray. That's necessary to look for metastatic disease. Radical orchiectomies performed via the inguinal approach, and that's to make the diagnosis and treat. It's not transcrotal, and the reason it's not transcrotal is because of lymphatic disruption. Of the types of testicular tumors, it seems to come up a lot that seminomas are highly radiosensitive. Let's talk more about those seminomas. It's the most common testicular tumor. So fortunately, most testicular tumors are radiosensitive. They're all seminomas. Uh, the most common tumor is a seminoma, and it's radiosensitive. So most commonly, uh, testicular tumors are radiosensitive. There's no AFP elevation. About 10% have an elevated beta-HCG. Again, radiosensitive. Treatment involves orchiectomy and retroperitoneal radiotherapy in all stages. Chemo for metastatic or large retroperitoneal disease followed by resection, and that chemo will be cisplatin, bleomycin, and a VP16 regimen. Now, non-seminomas, less common. Uh, these are uh, embryonal in origin, embryonal in origin. Teratomas can do it, uh, choriocarcinomas. These are chorio, teratoma, embryonal, all types of non-seminomas. Yolk sac tumor, non-seminoma. In these, AFP and beta-HCG are typically elevated. A teratoma, uh, 
will uh, unfortunately metastasize to the retroperitoneum, another non-seminomatous one, like we said. Treatment is orchiectomy with lymph node dissection of the retroperitoneum. So here, orchiectomy. Uh, here, uh, for seminoma, also orchiectomy uh, with retroperitoneal radiotherapy. This one gets chemo. It's not radiosensitive like the seminoma. Uh, chemo for stage two and up, followed by resection. And here, same sort of regimen, cisplatin, bleomycin, VP16. Next up, nephrolithiasis. This is the classic take on nephrolithiasis. Typically, it's men, 20 to 50. Colicky flank pain and hematuria are seen. About 90% of stones are radio-opaque, so you can see them on a KUB. Uh, but non-contrast abdominal CT is the preferred study. It can show you whether there's a hydronephrosis, quantify size of the stone a little better. Uh, conservative management is pain control and hydration. And there are ways to tell whether that stone will pass on its own. Now, if it's less than five millimeters in size, it's usually gonna pass on its own, almost always. Uh, but if it's not, well, there you go. The probability of passing drops way down if it's over five millimeters. Extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy can be used for non-obstructing stones if they're less than about three centimeters. Unfortunately, larger than three centimeters often needs a percutaneous nephrolithotomy. Here are the types, and these are the types of stones by um, composition. Uh, there's a cysteine stone, a uric acid stone, calcium oxalate stone, and a struvite stone. Struvite stones are the staghorn stones. Struvite stones, green right, associated with UTIs, caused by bacteria like Proteus mirabilis, ones that make urease. Uh, you can try hydration and antibiotics to treat the underlying UTI. Calcium oxalate, radio-opaque, treat with hydration. Uric acid, this is when you have high purine turnover, DNA bases, adenine and guanine, or the purines. When you have a lot of DNA turnover, like gout, etc., uh, high uric acid ones. They're radiolucent and uh, they're treated with hydration and alkalinizing the urine. Cysteine is another one. These are caused by cysteine transport defects. They're radioopaque and you need to alkalinize the urine and treat with hydration. Next up, let's look at screen right uh, renal cell carcinoma. Sometimes called the internist tumor, it can be very subtle. A classic triad of flank pain hematuria and a palpable mass can be present, but really it's only present in about a third of them. Uh, they can have a fever with it also. Uh, and risk factors include family history of renal cancer, syndromes associated with renal cancer, and tobacco use. It's about 95% of renal neoplasms, and it's typically seen in men during the sixth decade of life. Paraneoplastic syndromes like hypercalcemia, polycythemia, Cushing's, bone pain, or hypertension may be present. There's an elevation of renin and erythropoietin. An abdominal CT or a renal ultrasound, that'll confirm the diagnosis. Typically, it's a solid mass, not cystic, solid, and it's commonly vascularized solid mass. Again, chest X-ray and bone disease, gotta look for uh, distant disease. The lesion can also be metastatic from the lung to the kidneys. Breast can do it, stomach can do it, contralateral kidney or another site can also put a lesion at the kidneys. Nephrectomy, chemo, radiation, immuno, and hormonal therapy all play a role in treatment. Survival for stage four disease is poor, less than 20%, but for stage one disease is excellent, 
So here are the stages. Basically, stage four, if it goes beyond Gerota's fascia, and if it's in a lymph node, then unfortunately, it's stage four disease. If there's a distant met, stage four disease. If it's less than seven centimeters and it's just in the kidney, node's not involved, that's very fortunate. 94% five-year survival, stage one. Stage two, over seven centimeters, node's not involved, also in the kidney. Stage three, any size tumor limited to the kidney, but there's a node or any size tumor that invades a nearby structure. So this is one that can be invasive into a nearby structure, uh, and it's still a grade three. Grade four, if it involves, it gets beyond Gerota's fascia, but it involves more than one regional node or a distant met, that's stage four. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Here is the most common cancer in men overall, prostate cancer. And we talked about testicular cancer in that certain age group in men. But overall in men, prostate cancer, most common tumor. Second most common cause of death due to cancer in men. Most commonly seen eighth decade. Most commonly, it's an adenocarcinoma. Nice cartoon of that here. Risk factors, age, family history of cancer, African-American race, and a lot of fat in the diet. So often asymptomatic and can be discovered incidentally during a digital rectal exam. Bone pain, lower extremity edema, urinary obstruction, lower extremity edema. Those can be all uh, ways of symptoms and signs of it being there. The PSA will be increased and a transrectal ultrasound guided biopsy that's used to confirm the diagnosis. Metastatic disease is investigated with a bone scan or a chest x-ray. Lots of treatment options. Observation, radiation therapy, radical prostatectomy, and flutamide for androgen deprivation. All possible. A lot of options. Prostatectomy complications, when it has to come out, they're pretty significant when they happen, incontinence and impotence. Uh, Lots of uh, staging info here, but basically five-year survival for stage one is excellent, 100%. Five-year for stage four, though, about 30%. Stage four invades adjacent structures or is in the nodes or distant locations. Little different than renal cell staging where it can invade uh, distal structures Uh, invading nearby structure, but it can still be a stage three. Not so here. If it gets beyond the prostate capsule, uh, maybe in seminal vesicles, nodes negative, that's a stage three. If it involves adjacent structures, it's stage four, prostate cancer. Stage one, tumor that's incidentally discovered, nodes negative, stage one. Stage two, palpable disease, but it's confined to the prostate, uh, nodes negative. Next up, urinary incontinence. It's a big problem. comes up on the abscite sometimes as a result. It's about 13 million patients in the U.S. that are affected. There are lots of risk factors. BPH, UTI, childhood birth defects, spinal cord abnormalities is how it came up on my abscite. Neuropathy, pelvic floor or bladder weakness. Yeah, one of my abscites was focused on spinal cord abnormalities associated with urinary incontinence. And prolapse. There are several types, a mixed type pretty intuitive mix of these some other the other ones urge stress and overflow now urge is because the bladder's detrusor muscle is just hyperactive urge incontinence uh, suddenly you need to void and you just can't stop it stress is when there's intra-abdominal pressure 
more than the pressure in the urethra. Uh, and that can be, you know, you cough and it transiently raises the intra-abdominal pressure and urine leaks out. Overflow is uh, you are not able to empty a full bladder. It's due to urethral obstruction or spinal cord abnormalities. So eventually the area just overflows. Pressure finally exceeds urethral pressure and urine just comes out and that's when the bladder's overflowing with urine. Urodynamic tests can be useful, but the diagnosis is clinical, and uh, the urodynamic tests really tell you which type. Lots of possible treatments here. Uh, uh, lifestyle changes, like stopping tobacco, antihistamines, avoiding diuretics, Kegel exercises, strength of the pelvic floor, uh, meds like oxybutynin, doxazosin, uh, uh, temsulosin, and uh, TERP, if it's a BPH-induced overflow incontinence, those can all be utilized. In particular, stress incontinence can be amenable to urethropexy or suburethral sling, and urge incontinence can actually be treated by making the bladder bigger, uh, bladder augmentation. Bladder cancer is another important uh, lesion that gets tested on the abscites, is one a member of my family uh, had, unfortunately. Uh, and typically it's transitional cell, transitional cell cancer. So it can be the bladder and sort of beyond and some of the other transitional cell laden uh, organs. Uh, most commonly affects men in the seventh decade, tobacco use, increased age and chemical exposure with like benzidine, cyclophosphonide, uh, phenacidin and aniline dye. Those are the risk factors for bladder cancer. Uh, chronic inflammation is another way this can happen, like if you have a parasite disease, uh, like schistosomiasis. And if it's a schisto, it's actually squamous cell cancer, more commonly. But in general, they're transitional cell cancers. Uh, micro or macroscopic hematuria can be seen. Cystoscopy with biopsy makes the diagnosis. And if it's a superficial tumor, you can have a transurethral resection and dose them on BCG vaccine or doxorubicin. You can have this intravesicular chemo that can help with these superficial tumors. And if it's an invasive cancer, which is localized, radical cystectomy with urinary diversion is the treatment. And advanced bladder cancer is treated with a cisplatin-based regimen. Next up, otolaryngology, and we're kind of winding down here with the talk. Uh, so we're going to talk about the triangles of the neck. This comes up all the time. When we talk about the triangles of the neck, the SCM, the sternocleidomastoid, is the key. It divides the neck into an anterior and posterior triangle. And in the anterior triangle, there's a lot of action. Uh, the arteries that are there include the facial, the internal carotid, and the external carotid. Lots of nerves, glossopharyngeal, vagus, and hypoglossal, they're all present. So cranial nerve 12, hypoglossal, 10, the vagus, nine, glossopharyngeal. Lots of veins, the facial vein, anterior jug and internal jug, they're all present. And lymph node groups include the submental and submandibular glands, uh, uh, submandibular lymph node group, I should say. Glands present are also submandibular gland. There's the parotid gland and also the thyroid. Muscles of that anterior triangle, SCM, suprahyoid, digastric, and infrahyoid. Now the posterior triangle, there the artery present is the subclavian artery. And the nerve present is the spinal accessory nerve, nerve 11. So 9, 10, 12, anterior triangle, posterior triangle, 11. Veins present are the external jug and the subclavian vein. Uh, the lymph node group is the cervical nodes. 
and there are really no major named glands present in the posterior triangle of the neck. Muscles include the SCM, trapezius, splenius capitis, uh, levator scapulae, and the anterior and posterior scaling in the posterior triangle of the neck. Let's talk about salivary gland tumors. These do come up, and uh, they're typically painless masses. Here's one screen right. Uh, but at times, they can be painful. If there's facial nerve paralysis, that means the nerve is invaded, and nerve invasion is worrisome for malignancy. Pleomorphic adenoma is the most common benign tumor of the salivary glands, and Worthlin's tumor is the second most common benign tumor. So these are the benign ones, pleomorphic adenoma, Worthlin's. Worthlin's tends to affect males, and it tends to be bilateral. Most common malignant tumor, mucoepidermoid. Second most common malignant salivary tumor, adenoid cystic. Except in the minor salivary glands, uh, where it actually turns out, unfortunately, to the most common malignant salivary tumor. So in the minor salivary glands, there's a malignant tumor. Most common is adenoid cystic. Uh, hemangioma in children is actually the most common salivary tumor, so it changes up in children. And you really need to do an FNA of the mass or involved node uh, to determine whether benign or malignant. Again, in children, careful, hemangioma is most common. Probably don't want to stick a needle in that. Uh, CT demonstrates node status. The size is the determining factor for staging. Uh, T1 is less than 2 centimeters. T2 is uh, uh, T3. Actually, let's skip there. Is over 4. So less than 2 is T1. T3 is greater than 4. T2 is somewhere in between there. Benign parotid tumors are treated with a superficial parotidectomy. Malignant salivary gland lesions, you got to resect the gland from which the tumor originates, modified radical neck dissection, post-op radiation, uh, except there are certain exceptions we'll get to in just a second. Um, radiation in general is used if there's recurrent disease, the margins are positive, T3 or greater disease, or invasion of surrounding structures. Now, if there's a malignancy that's less than four centimeters, it's low grade, located in a superficial lobe of the parotid, that one can be treated with a superficial parotidectomy, you may be able to get away without radiation. Complications include nerve injuries to cranial nerve 12, cranial nerve 7, the mandibular branch, the greater auricular nerve, and the auriculotemporal nerve. The auricular temporal comes up a lot because if you injure the auricular temporal nerve with a superficial parotidectomy, you can result in, you can have, patient can have, Fry's syndrome. And Fry's syndrome is gustatory sweating. Patient eats and they sweat on that side. And that's when there's abnormal innervation of uh, parasympathetic fibers as the area regrows. And it's kind of demonstrated screen right here in the cartoon where parasympathetics kind of cross to sweat glands etc. Normally, sympathetic will go out to the sweat glands alone, but it becomes a mixed innervation when there's nerve injury and uh, repair. Uh, there's this mixed innervation of sweat glands and they sweat when they eat. Um, modified radical neck dissection, it's important to know how that's different uh, from a radical neck dissection. Modified radical neck dissection preserves cranial nerve 11 and the sternocleidomastoid is preserved, and the internal jugular gland is preserved, rather, internal jugular vein is preserved. So the vein's preserved, 11 is preserved, and the SCM is preserved in a modified radical neck. 
It's about a 15% risk, unfortunately. When you have, you find a primary head and neck tumor, you gotta remember to look elsewhere because there's about one in 10 that will have, unfortunately, another lesion somewhere else. So none of these lesions exist sort of in isolation. If you find one, you better check elsewhere. Next up is oral tumors, and about 90% are squamous cell carcinomas. Most typical location is the tongue of a male patient. We see that screen right. Uh, erythroplakia and leukoplakia are premalignant antecedents of cancer. So white patch, leukoplakia, red patch, erythroplakia, watch out, cancer may be coming. Painless mass or an ulcer that bleeds, uh, causes pain, or you can't speak right because your tongue won't go that way. Uh, without pain, uh, those are signs of oral cancer. CT and MRI are used to determine the lesion relationship to other structures and size. Laryngoscopy with biopsy gives a diagnosis. T1 and T2, wide local excision is a treatment, or radiation is an option. T3 and T4, wide local excision and radiation. Neck dissection gets added on for oral tumors when they're clinically positive nodes or those that are at really high risk for metastasis, T2 or greater. And here's the TNM staging. Um, so uh, NO is no nodes, MO is no METs, M1 is positive METs. So if there's M1, you're automatically a stage four uh, and uh, that's 20% survival at best. So stage four C, the bad one. But you become stage four if there's any T4 lesion. So stage four is a T4 lesion. Tumor that's not, a tumor that invades surrounding structures becomes a T4. Uh, so if it invades, it's a T4. It invades, it's a T4, that makes it a stage four right away. Um, every single thing here is uh, stage four is T4. But if there's also nodes, uh, if you have really large lymph nodes over six centimeters, if you're over six centimeters, uh, you're uh, also a stage four. If you have over six centimeter nodes, you're also a stage four. So big nodes, uh, a tumor that invades, uh, or uh, if you have um, one, um, more than one a positive, uh, you're a four. Stage one is if you have a small tumor and nothing else. Stage one is if you have a small oral tumor and nothing else. Stage two is if you have a T2 lesion, which is less than two, uh, rather greater than two, less than four. If you have that, you're T2, but you can't have anything else, then you're stage two. So the stages, as we said earlier, the T staging also pretty much determines the T part of the TNM pretty much is determinant for what your stage is going to be. There are some nodal exceptions, but that's kind of the rule of thumb here. Laryngeal cancer, here's a cancer of the larynx, most common in men in the fifth to seventh decade. Risk factors are tobacco and alcohol use, presents as hoarseness, painful swallowing, or airway obstruction. Tracheostomy is unfortunately typically required to secure the airway, and the location of the tumor and vocal cord function are used to determine treatment. And that can include radiation, chemo radiation, and sometimes surgical intervention. Again, modified radical neck dissection, so preserving the internal jugular vein, sternocleidomastoid, and cranial nerve 11. Modified radical neck dissection can be used here. And survival is 95% with stage one disease, but 20% stage four disease. 
This one comes up a lot on the ab site, the retropharyngeal abscess uh, seen in children and adults. It can be anaerobic, aerobic, uh, anaerobic, aerobic, or gram-negative bacteria can cause it. Drooling, inability uh, to um, drooling, inability to swallow, and airway obstruction, those can all occur. And it often gets called uh, Ludwig's angina when there's an airway obstruction because of a retroperitoneal abscess. There's a posterior pharyngeal bulge, and the patient can hold the neck toward the side that's not affected. Kind of makes sense. I want to take pressure off the affected side. Pharynx can be widened on neck x-ray. Screen right shows your dramatic one. Treatment is to first secure the airway and then explore the lesion. Drain it and give antibiotics. Again, uh, well, not again, first time. You can get mediastinitis from this. It can track down there. And that when that happens, it's a 50% mortality from it. So be on the lookout. Aspiration, pneumonia, and empyema, and even death can occur. Like we said, 50% mortality if it involves the uh, mediastinum. Peritonsillar abscess, this is the classic hot potato voice, comes up all the time. This one's typically polymicrobial. You have to treat for strep, streptococcus. Young adults get it. Uvula deviates toward the other side, the contralateral side. You can see that here. Anterior tonsillar pillar bulges. Needle aspiration, both diagnostic and therapeutic. But exam usually confirms a diagnosis. And if you can't just aspirate it, if they don't recover with that, you may have to incise and drain it. That's it. Those are all the typical subspecialty questions for select subspecialties that come up on the ab site. We want to invite your feedback for the course. You can see the link down here, screen bottom. It's www.research.net slash r slash smackdown. If you have some specific feedback to give us, please go there. Uh, we encourage you to give positive feedback on Amazon, AbSiteSmackdown.com, the social media pages, and here they are. Uh, drop your positive comments here. If you have specific ones on stuff we can improve, we really appreciate it. Give those to us, research.net slash r slash smackdown. We really would love to hear from you if you have any uh, specific feedback there. Um, positive comments, how you use the book and course, we love to hear them and we really appreciate it. That's insta at daily.absite.fact. Uh, you can get your um, uh, daily absite fact there and really almost any of these. Facebook has it, Twitter has it, LinkedIn has it. We also have the Absite Smackdown channel, home of the video podcast, uh, that has some additional uh, free Absite review there that you can go to to get some of the talks for this year's Absite review. And of course, there's the Absite Smackdown podcast. You can get it almost anywhere you listen to your podcast, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon, many others. We really appreciate your time today with the course. Hope you find it super useful for this year's website. We welcome your feedback. And remember, subspecialties come up all the time. My hope is this talk certainly does help you with what's on your website this year. Now, let's get to the next one. Thanks again for joining us on the Absite Smackdown podcast. And we hope again you found this review talk on select subspecialties for the Absite just really useful. Uh, my co-host, Jessica Rizzo, I really appreciate. And of course, again, she's on vacation this week, but she'll be back soon. Uh, I guess I'm sort of the co-host, really. But in this one, I appreciate her letting me get this done for you all this week. And thanks again to the publishers and the team 
uh, the Project SmackDown team for putting everything together as usual. Uh, we hope you find this super useful for your AppSite review this year. And uh, to take Jessica's line uh, on loan this week, remember, hashtag AppSite SmackDown. Thanks for listening to the AppSite SmackDown podcast. Visit us at AppSiteSmackDown.com for more great AppSite facts.